Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 17. It's on page 890 in your pew Bible, and then it's also printed for you uh, there in your bulletin. Uh, Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slade. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, since it's homecoming, you could be celebrating with all your old pals down at the Frothy Monkey. Uh, You could be uh, out at the West Hills Pickleball Courts preparing for the Men's Pumpkin Spice Pickleball Play Day. Uh, Or uh, you could be conditioning your fall beard with uh, some pumpkin spice beard oil, which is a real thing. Uh, You can look it up online if you'd like to. But you're not doing any of those things. You're here with us this morning. I want to thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is something better that you could do with your time uh, than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the power and the kindness of his salvation uh, and his love for you. And so I do want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church, and uh, what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community and we condition our beards together with that pumpkin spice oil. We play pickleball together. But what we really love to do is we love to gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind one another of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and then as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together... We might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out uh, to the ends of the earth. So that's who we are. We're people trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in this series that we've entitled Questions God Asks. And we think this is really important because the reality is all of us have questions. We all have questions about God. We all have questions about this world. We have questions about one another. And God is kind enough to invite us to bring those questions to him. But it's also true that God might have some questions for us. And so as we go through the Bible, one of the things we see is God over and over again coming to his people and patiently, generously, kindly asking questions to us. And so this morning, we want to look at Jesus's question, do you want to be healed? All right, do you want to be healed? So with that in mind, let's look together. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. 
After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're thankful uh, that you are a God uh, not hidden, uh, not silent, but you're a God who has made yourself known. And you've done this in your word uh, by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately you've done it in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer now uh, that as we attend unto your word, that in your kindness and by your mercy, you would attend unto us that we might see lovely and beautiful things of you in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my children have grown and flown, uh, but watching the children sort of run out and run over one another on their way to children's worship always reminds me of when we were young and we had these young children and we had no money and we would spend half of our paycheck on band-aids. Uh, because my kids, they loved uh, the band-aids and they especially loved the character band-aids. And so I would come home from work and Mary Austin would have like a Barbie band-aid on her forehead for her headache. And, you know, Annabelle would have, you know, Spider-Man on her tummy for her tummy ache. And one of them would have, you know, uh, Elmo on their elbow. And I would think like, what happened, you know, while I was away at work today? And I think for children, these uh, band-aids are these amazing things because blood or no blood, uh, they heal almost everything, right? I mean, they stop the bleeding, they dry the tears. But as I think about my little girls covered in Barbie band-aids, I'm reminded that all of us are wounded. And each and every one of us are wounded in a variety of ways, some more public, some less, some for everybody to see, some more private. And I think some of us, our bodies, uh, we know them, and they're just sort of giving up on us. Uh, some of us are covered uh, with scrapes and with scars, and some of us emotionally and physically and psychologically and spiritually uh, are sick and have been wounded. 
And that's really what the doctrine of total depravity is all about. What the doctrine of total depravity means is that every part of us, all of our thoughts, all of our desires, our our hearts, our emotions, our actions, have all been wounded by the fall. And the longer we live, and the longer we have to endure these wounds, the more we begin to realize that all these band-aids don't really heal us. And so Jesus comes to each and every one of us, and he says, do you want to be healed? Right? Do you want to be healed? And the reason that Jesus asked this question is because he wants to try to move us out of our hopelessness and into a place of hope. He wants to move us from hopelessness to hope. And that's what I want us to think about as we look at this passage, this movement from hopelessness to hope. So let's begin with hopelessness. I want you to think about this question that gets asked in verse 6. Do you want to be healed? Right? Do you want to be healed? I think this is a question that many of us really need to consider. Do you really want to be healed? Because when I think back on the eighth grade when I broke my ankle, I really kind of love the attention that the crutches gave me. And when I think back on my little girls covered in Band-Aids, I know that they love those Band-Aids. And I wonder if some of us want to be healed. I wonder if some of us really want Jesus to come and meet us in those dark, broken, private places, or if we actually love those dark, private places. Because when Jesus heals us, he seeks to change us. Right? When Jesus heals us, he changes us. And that's why he says in verse 14, go and sin no more. When God heals us, he changes us. And so we've got to ask this question, do you really want to be healed? Do you want to be healed of your bitterness? Or do you love that sense of power and righteousness that you feel uh, that you have over those who have wronged you? Do you love that feeling of, uh, of being justified for withholding love from people that you don't think are worthy of it? Do you really want to be healed from closing yourself off to other people and beginning to open up and make room for people that are different from you? Or do you find yourself pretty content with the selfish, materialistic, upwardly mobile, class-driven lives that we live in? If y'all are like me, I think you're pretty content. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do I want to be healed? I'm not sure. And when I think about Jesus coming to me and wanting to heal me of this closeness and open me up to loving others, I'm so afraid. Because if I start trying to love other people, who's going to love me? And who's going to take care of me? And so it's someone like me that Jesus then comes and he says, Sean, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed from your self-absorption? Do you want to be healed from your selfish ambition? Do you want to be healed from this constant pursuit of comfort and ease? Yes? Maybe? Like, I'm not sure. 
Now, when others of us hear this question, do you want to be healed, uh, I think some of us are really afraid of the question because it just seems impossible, right? Suffering and disappointment and the struggles of this life are all that you know. And you're not really sure if it's healthy for you to hope or to dream anymore. And so we find ourselves like these abused dogs that are afraid to leave their cages. And we're afraid to imagine that things might get better or that things would ever get better. And so it's to people like us that this question comes and Jesus comes and he says to us, do you want to be healed? Now, what I think is really beautiful about this question is that Jesus comes to us, and what he's doing is he's trying to invite us uh, to hope for something better. He's asking us to look for a day that might be different from today. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to stir up a redemptive imagination within us about what God might do. And so I want you to think about this man's hopeless situation, verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. I want you to think about what's going on here in the story. In verse 1, we learn that Jesus is on his way to a feast. He's on his way to a festival. He's on his way to a party, to a celebration. And on the way to that party, what does he do? He stops under the bridge on Broadway. He stops and goes over to the ER over at Fort Sanders Hospital. He goes to where the invalids go. He goes to where the bruised and the broken, the weak and the sore and the sick go. He goes to those that are invalid in the eyes of the world. He goes to those that are seen as not fully human. And so on his way to the party, Jesus goes to gather where they have gathered. And when he gets to this pool, and Bethesda literally, the pool of the house of grace, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed, they're laid out under this, these colonnades, and they're, they're hopelessly waiting to receive healing. Now, we don't fully understand what was going on at this pool. Uh, maybe, as your footnote suggests, in uh, footnote number five, I think it is, uh, maybe an angel would come and stir up the waters and there would be healing. Or maybe this was a spring that had medicinal purposes or properties. Or maybe this was this ongoing supernatural act from God that would happen over and over again. I don't know. But what the text is showing us is there at the pool, like the hopeless would come for hope. And whenever that pool began to stir, their hearts would begin to stir with hope. And I want you to notice that as Jesus comes to this group of people, he walks up to the one who is maybe the most hopeless of all. You see it in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Now, let's press pause and think about that. 38 years. Uh, presumably, this man has been lying on a mat next to this pool, or at least being brought to this pool for 38 years. 38 years. That's 1985. That's when New Coke came out, if any of you remember that. Right? That's uh, Michael Jordan's uh, rookie year. Uh, it's two years after Ben Bannister was born, 
1985, and uh, this man has come to this pool longer than Jackie's been at the KRC, if any of you go to the KRC. And so Jesus comes up uh, to this man, and he says, uh, do you want to be healed? And I want you to notice the man's response in verse 7. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. As we listen to this response, we kind of want to say, hey, wrong answer. He said, do you want to be healed? Just say, yes, please heal me. But I want you to notice his response because his response is revealing his hopelessness. You can almost hear his resignation. You can hear the resignation in his voice as if he's saying, don't you understand that this is just my life? Like, I've been here. I'm going to stay here. Nothing is going to change. I'm not getting better. Now, one of the sad things about this passage is it's not merely that he's immobile. I want you to notice the loneliness of his response. He says, I have no one to put me in the pool. A major part of this man's hopelessness is actually his loneliness. This man has not only lost the use of his legs, he's lost his friends and his family, and he's found himself alone by this pool. And there's no one there that seems to be looking out for him. And let's be honest, that probably over these 38 years, he's probably become kind of unlikable. I sort of see it in the text because you think about this, if after 38 years, surely you would think with all these people gathered around the pool, someone might say, hey, Ben's been coming here for 38 years. He can't get in there. Can't we help him out? Let's give him a turn. What do you say, right? This is a man, right, who is hopeless. He's got a broken body. He has no help, no friends, no family. No one's looking out for him. He's got no hope. And I say this, I'm trying to describe this, trying to draw this out on who this man is, because think about this in your own life, when the wounds become prominent, when you can't avoid the wounds, how do you feel about yourself? How do you think about yourself? Do you not often feel as if you're no longer human? You're sort of subhuman. Do you not feel like no one loves you, no one can help you? Do you not often feel like you're useless and broken and unlovable, destined to this pain and this loneliness forever? And this is the type of man that Jesus comes to and he visits on his way to a feast. On his way to a party, he comes to the hopeless in order to give them hope. And that's the second point, hope. Uh, Look at verse 8. Jesus comes to the man, he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is a big deal, because I want you to notice that it is Jesus that healed the man. Jesus could have said, hey, let me help you down into the water. But that's not what he does. Jesus says, get up, and walk, the man was healed. And this is a big deal because by doing this, what Jesus is saying is when everyone and everything else fails you, I am your hope. It's Jesus who heals the man, not the water. As we talk about all this stuff, as your pastor, I want to be really careful of stirring up too much hope. But at the same time, I want to be really careful of stealing your hope or of crushing your hope. Because here's the deal. From the time of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 on to the end of time, the work of God is to heal this world. That is what God is up to. 
That is the work of God, to heal the world of all of its wounds. God's work is to heal the world of sickness and of poverty and of war and of guilt and of shame and of broken relationships and to heal this world even of death. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came into the world to secure our healing. Jesus came into the world to make us whole once again, and that is our hope. In fact, it's the very way the Bible ends. If you read through to the end of the Bible, what do we see in Revelation 21 and 22? But we see a God who draws near to his people, who does not leave us to ourselves. And what does he do? He then dries our tears, he heals our wounds. There's no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. And instead of all the suffering, instead of the sickness, instead of the restlessness, where is humanity going? To a feast. In the very same way that in verse 1, Jesus is on his way to a feast, humanity is on a way, is on the way with him to the very same feast. That is our hope. As human beings, God is moving us towards his feast. But when it comes to hope in the day-to-day of our lives, I think timing is often the issue. Because the fact of the matter is this, Jesus uh, might heal you this afternoon. Like, I've seen him do that kind of work. Some of you have seen him do that kind of work. But Jesus also might wait 38 years. And I've seen him do that sort of work as well. And then Jesus might also wait until you see him face to face. But here's the point of the text. Jesus wants to seek those of us out who are hopeless in order to fill us with hope. That we have a God who is not going to leave us to ourselves in our suffering. We have a God who's not going to leave us alone But we have a God who wants to come to the invalids of the world in order to assure us that we are valid to him. And so he comes to give us hope. He he comes to assure us that he is with us. He comes to promise us that he will make the addict clean. That he will give the orphan a family. That he will bring clarity to the confused that the lame will actually leap, the blind will actually see, the hungry will begin to feast, the poor will overflow in abundance, and the dead will rise from the grave. That is the hope of Christianity. That is what God is working right now to do, to heal this world of all of our afflictions. Now, what is it that will keep this hope alive in our hearts I want you to notice uh, when the event occurs. It occurs, verse 9, on the day, it says, now that day was the Sabbath. The healing occurred on the Sabbath. Now, what is the Sabbath? But the Sabbath is the weekly day of rest that God gives to his people. And what this is showing us is that every week, God sets apart a day to tell us I am going to heal you. Every day, God sets apart a day to say, I am going to give you rest. Now, when the people saw this man walking and carrying his mat, you'll notice that they were furious. 
so furious, in fact, that in verse 7, 16, it tells us that they were persecuting Jesus. So furious, in fact, that it tells you, if you have your Bible open, in verse 18, that they were seeking to kill Jesus. And I think for many of us in a modern age uh, who don't really think about the Sabbath much, this sounds absurd to many of us. But for a Jewish audience, this was a real issue because this is about the commandments of God. This is about the fourth commandment. And over and over again throughout the Bible, right, the, the Sabbath day is the day. We're commanded to keep it. We're commanded to rest. Right? But to what end? Right? What was the point of the Sabbath? And I think that this is what the people were missing. You see, to, uh, the Sabbath is not merely a day for us to do nothing. And the Sabbath is not merely uh, a day where we gather uh, together and worship, which is something we do, which is a gift. But the Sabbath is more than that. The Sabbath is actually God's promise that he is working to bring rest to the world. It is God's promise that he is going to give us rest. And as God's people, when we uh, participate in his Sabbath, we then have the privilege of enjoying a foretaste of that coming rest. You see, God's promise is that he is going to heal this world of all of its pains. He's going to heal us of our restlessness. He's going to heal our lives. And he's going to make us whole. And this is why Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And what he's saying is that God is working to give rest to the world. That God is working to heal all things. That he is working to restore the goodness, the fullness, and the wholeness of creation. And so when we look at this man, he is not walking around carrying his mat to break the Sabbath. This man is actually an expression of Sabbath. This man is an expression of what God is doing. He is the fulfillment of God's work. He's a real-life example of God's kingdom come. He is the work of God's new creation, and he serves then as a sign to all of us that we can hope that God will do this for the world, that God is working to heal our wounds, that God is working to dry our tears, that God is working to renew the world. And when God's work is done, we will rest. When God's work is done, there'll no longer be men and women lying on mats next to a pool hoping to be healed. There'll no longer be men and women seeking shelter under a bridge so that they can find sleep. There are going to be no more hospitals. There are going to be no more cancer clinics, no more graveyards, no more organ transplant lists, no more policemen, no more depression, no more unemployment, no more addiction, no more eating disorders, no more racism, no more fear, no more weeping, no more mental illness. Because God is at work removing the curse and making all things new. And this is what the Sabbath is meant to do. It is meant to be a foretaste and a promise from God that he is healing this world. And this is exactly why Christians no longer celebrate the Sabbath on the last day of the week. Instead, we celebrate the Sabbath on the first day of the week. Because the first day is the first day of resurrection. 
And the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. And what is God doing in his new creation? But he is working to give rest. He is working to heal this world until he comes again. And when he comes again, he promises that he will come with healing in his wings. And so every day, or every Sunday, as we gather together on this little corner, we gather together with one another to stir up hope with one another. We gather together to participate in what God has promised that he will do. We gather together in hope and we lay hold of that promise that God will return to heal us. Because God is at work. And he is tending the garden of the new creation. And he is slowly, patiently, graciously healing this world until the day comes when he will return uh, with that healing in his wings. And that's the point of the table. Because as we come to the table, uh, we see that Jesus has done work on our behalf. He's given his body and his blood to heal us. And it is his resurrection that is the promised day, right, that creation will be renewed and restored. And so Jesus in his kindness now invites us to come to his table where he feeds us with himself so that he can nourish us, so that he can nurse us back to health and feed us with the promise that he will come again. So do you want to be healed? Jesus has come to me. Trust my promises, for I will return, and I will dry your tears, and I will heal your wounds.